If you have a Bible with you, please take it and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, as we continue to work through this relatively, for us, brief series of messages through this marvelous chapter in God's Word, Romans chapter 8. This morning we're going to be looking at, well I'll be reading verses 12 through 17. Our main focus will be on verses 15 through 17. If you were with us last week, what was supposed to be one sermon turned into two sermons. And so here we are uh, today as we're going to be focusing on the second half of this section. So Romans 8, I want to read for you beginning in verse 12 through verse 17. And if you're able, I would ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's authoritative and inspired and holy and life-giving word. Let's give it our full attention. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children of God, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Now, O Lord, I ask that you would grant us hearing and understanding, that we would receive your word with faith and with joy, that you would correct us where we need to be corrected, convict us in the ways that we need to be convicted, encourage us, Lord, encourage the faint-hearted, challenge those who believe everything's fine do your good work in us today god we ask through jesus amen you may have a seat there were i suppose any number of ways that god could have chosen to bless us and give us an uh, an interest into that heavenly, eternal inheritance. You've heard, for instance, the stories of anonymous benefactors who will send entire graduating classes in high school to college and pay for all of it. Those are extraordinary stories. Or, you know, in Jesus' own day, it was not particularly unusual for very faithful, honorable, honest, hard-working household servants to be given a share of an inheritance from their master. But God, in choosing to include a vast number of people into the wealth of his eternal inheritance, chose something far more inconvenient, far more costly, but far more intimate. He chose to write his people into his will by way of adoption. The Westminster Confession of Faith, our church and denominations Confession of Faith. Chapter 12 is entitled, On Adoption. Listen to this. All those that are justified, God 
vouchsafeth. Isn't that a great word? It means that God has guaranteed. Guaranteed. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for His only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. They have His name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by Him as a Father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Isn't that good? That'll preach, they say. Or what you heard earlier in the service, once again from Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the beloved Jesus Christ. Now, in order to get a view toward what Paul is describing here when he mentions adoption, it's important that we have some idea of the incredible challenges, the expense, and in some cases even the dangers involved in some adoptions, in fact in many adoptions. Will Doby, in his wonderful little book entitled From Everlasting to Everlasting, describes the harrowing experience of adopting a child from an impoverished and corrupt and war-torn nation. Let me just read this for you. Dobie writes, You're standing in a large room. The acrid stench of soiled bedding hits your nostrils. The sound of buzzing flies joins with the occasional scuttle of a rat. And the faint whimpering coming from the rows of cots in front of you. Whimpering, not full-blooded crying, because the babies and toddlers have learned that only rarely will anyone come. You reflect on the 12-month process which has taken you to this point. Research, phone calls, paperwork, meetings with lawyers, financial payments, the arrangement of time off from work back home in your own country, vaccinations, flight bookings, hotel bookings, orphanage visits, more financial payments, meetings with officials, court hearings. The list seems interminable. And yet, here you stand. An hour ago, a judge finally granted the longed-for adoption order. Now is the fulfillment of a year's endeavor. You reach down into the cot in front of you and scoop up the little girl with whom you've been bonding in recent weeks. You enfold her in a clean, soft blanket and tenderly whisper 
her new name over her. Next stop, the airport. She is finally yours to bring home. And then the author adds these words. You are that baby. You were an orphan in the universe, hopeless and helpless, living out a tragedy when your father had fulfilled all that was necessary, an extraordinary, miraculous process of propitiation, justification, and redemption, planned from eternity past and accomplished on the cross. He was finally ready to reach down, scoop you up, and bring you home. It's good, isn't it? As we focused last week on verses 12 through 14, we saw how the Father's grace of adoption, His active adoption of us through faith in Christ, first of all, makes us free from the power and the penalty of sin. Secondly, we saw that by this grace of adoption, we are now led by the Holy Spirit. And as we continue to consider the blessings of this gracious adoption by our Heavenly Father, we see, number three, that we are granted the status of sons. We are granted the status of sons. Look again at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And then verse 15. Paul says that we've received the Spirit of adoption as sons. The Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms were the first Protestant catechisms to address the doctrine of adoption. Westminster Shorter Catechism, verse 34, or, or chapter 34, which we uh, read together last week, it asks this, what is adoption? And the answer goes like this, adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have all the rights and privileges of the sons of God. Now there's that wonderful term again, sons. It's a term here, not of gender, but of status. Status that applies to all of those who believe in Jesus, male and female, Gentile and Jew, slave or free, all of those who are in Christ share the status of sons of God. Because the son, particularly the eldest son, held the place of highest status in his father's household. In fact, if you were a daughter, you were not legally entitled to any of your father's inheritance. No wonder the New Testament is jealous for us to hear that we in Christ are sons of God. Galatians 4, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. So to be united to Christ by faith entails the transformation of our status, the granting of a brand new status from enemies of God, which we once were, strangers to the promises of God, covenant outsiders, but by the grace of God, through the saving work of Jesus Christ, through now adoption, our Heavenly Father grants us a new status away from all of our former sin and disaster. He now grants us the status of sons of God. 
Anybody here read Jane Austen? If you're a guy, you can admit it. It's all right. Anybody? Come on, raise them high. I, I, we do have a literate... Co- okay, good. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying that you have to read Jane Austen to be well-informed. Um, but what's the theme of you know, like half of her books? You know, it's about those girls that are going to lose the family home because they can't inherit. It's the anxiety surrounding the daughters in Victorian England. They needed intervention if they were to have hope for a secure present and a secure future. Well, if that was true for many in Victorian England, it is doubly true for the daughters in Jesus' day. And so, I say that to say, do not despise this wonderful title of status, sons, because in God's economy, it is the way for him to state the highest status that can be placed upon you. Sisters in Christ, listen to me. God has not left you behind, and he has not relegated you to a lower rung in the Christian family. He has given you what was once refused to you by the world. He has given you the status of sons while still calling you daughter. That the Father has adopted us in Christ and that in our union with Him, Christ has brothered us. That can well be described as the very heart of the Bible's teaching concerning salvation. Sinclair Ferguson in his wonderful little book, Children of the Living God, writes that being children of God, His own sons and daughters, lies at the heart of all Christian theology and is the mainspring of Christian living. Now I want to state this because I do not want to be misunderstood. You will hear voices in the world, some of them religious voices, unfortunately, who say things like, we are all children of God. And the Bible does not teach that. God's Word does not teach that. None of us are born children of God. The Bible teaches us that we come into this world at enmity with God. If you were born a child of God, then you would have to be taught how to sin because righteousness would have come natural to you. Do you know anybody born that way? The reason why we don't have to be taught to sin, the, the, the reason why sin comes so naturally to us is because we are born in sin. We are not born children of God. We are made children of God. We are adopted by God through faith in Jesus. So please hear that. These promises in Romans chapter 8 don't go to humanity in general. These are promises written upon the hearts of Christians, of those who are in Christ. So Christianity is not about climbing higher levels of achievement or having increasingly mystical experiences. Being a Christian is about being adopted by the Father because we have been united to Christ in faith. It's about being God's sons and daughters, His freeborn children. Again, verse 15, do you see it? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. 
The spirit of adoption there is a title for the Holy Spirit. The the, the spirit of slavery is not some spiritual entity, but rather it is just a way for Paul to reference our natural human condition outside of Christ. We're slaves to sin, slaves to fear, slaves to death and decay. That's our condition outside of Christ. But because of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, we are now no longer slaves as we once were, but now we are sons. John Calvin wrote that the spirit of adoption is the Holy Spirit's first title. Not because it's the first thing that the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, but because of all the titles that are granted to the Holy Spirit, Calvin said spirit of adoption is the most important one. And you know, if you consider the transformation of dead sinners into beloved children of God as the Spirit's greatest work, then Calvin was certainly right. Spirit of adoption is his first title. And think about this. If the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, is the spirit of adoption, then one of the things that tells us about our Heavenly Father is that He refused to be without you. He refused to be without you. What does the infant do in the process of being adopted? Anybody have any idea? Nothing. The adoption is wholly the work of someone outside of him or her. It requires that someone really wants her. And isn't it an extraordinary thought that the eternal God Self-sufficient. There's this wonderful theological term that applies to God. We call it his aseity. It means he is entirely unto himself. Entirely self-sufficient. Not created. Always being. Entirely dependent upon himself and nothing outside of himself. He's the only thing in the universe that is that way. Because he's the only non-created thing in the universe. His aseity. All that means is that he does not require us. God is not the pitiable lover hoping that we'll like him back. It makes his adoption of us all the more stunning. That the God who is entirely self-sufficient, entirely self-existing, entirely complete within himself, with no needs at all, refused to be without you. Grace. Grace is the only explanation. And that's what our God is like. The term translated adoption is in some translations, rendered sonship. So there are some translations that render this the spirit of sonship, and that's appropriate. Uh, The Greek term, huiothesius, means something along the lines of to be placed as sons. Again, that understanding of status. God adopts you not to be a household servant, but to be his child. Now, I want to say this. 
We mentioned this last week. When it comes to the Bible's descriptions of what it means to be a Christian, it's multifaceted. The Bible doesn't tell us just one thing about being a Christian. The Bible tells us lots of things about what it means to be a Christian so that what we end up with is this beautiful multifaceted diamond by which it refracts light in such beautiful ways and gives us this full understanding. I say that to say this. The same Apostle Paul here who is telling us, you have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. The same Paul in Galatians who says, so you're no longer slaves, but you're sons. Do you know what Paul's favorite way to refer to himself in his epistles was? Servant of Christ. Slave of Christ. And we want to say, so which is it, Paul? You're telling us we're not servants, we're not slaves, but you keep calling yourself a servant and a slave of Christ. I think this is the key. As he contemplated the awesomeness of God, as he contemplated the holiness of Christ and all that Christ had done for him, as he meditated upon the fact that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, Paul no doubt thought of himself as the servant of the King slave of the good and great Lord. And that slave, or that Lord looked upon Paul and called him son. And Christian, the Lord of all things, the king of the universe, who is your king, whom we are called to follow faithfully, whom we are called to render obedience to, looks upon us and says, Son, daughter, beloved child. In the first century, it was oftentimes slaves and household servants who were adopted. You didn't have the sorts of adoption agencies that we have in the modern world. And if a servant demonstrated great honor and particular trustworthiness, the master would at times choose to adopt that servant, particularly if he had no male heirs. And that helps us understand here why Paul is juxtaposing adoption with slavery. So many of those adopted in the first century were former slaves. And Paul is saying, you are no longer a slave. You're not a slave to fear. You're not a slave to death. You're not a slave to sin anymore. And here's why. Because you've received the spirit of adoption. The whole character of the triune God stands in guarantee of that status. What the Father has decreed, the Son has accomplished, and the Spirit has applied. We mentioned this last week. You are in no, you, you, it is not possible for you to be in a more secure state if you're a Christian. Because God in His full glory, in the full revelation of His triune self, stands behind your status as His child. We see here in this section of Romans 8 when Paul is assuring us we see the references to God that is a reference to the Father to the Son and to the Spirit our salvation comes as all things come with the full guarantee of the triune God Sinclair Ferguson writes bringing us into the family makes us children and it is the work of the triune God in all of his glory the Father predestines us to be his children. 
The Son comes to make us His brothers and sisters. The Spirit is sent as the Spirit of adoption to make us fully aware of those privileges. Fourthly, we are comforted by the Father's love. By way of adoption, we are comforted by the Father's love. Look again at verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the spirit who dwells within you is the spirit of adoption, not slavery. And that is why something deep inside of us is caused to cry out, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is a transliteration of the Aramaic word for father. It's not a colloquialism that means daddy. It means father. Aramaic was the Syrian dialect that was spoken by the Jews in Judea during Jesus' day. 200 years prior to that, the Syrians were still in control of Judea before uh, the Maccabees and the Romans drove them out. But from that point on, that Syrian dialect was still the common language of the Jews in Judea. And Abba is the Aramaic word for father. So the Jewish children in and around Judea at home would refer to their fathers as Abba. Because that was their word for father. And Jesus came and did something unprecedented. He addressed God as Abba. Father. Think about how Jesus taught his people to pray. Our Father. And the apostles preserved that language and they passed it along to the churches. The same language that Jesus used so that all Christians everywhere would come to relate to God as Father. In commenting on that Aramaic word, Abba, Martin Luther wrote that even while we don't speak Aramaic and so don't use the term Abba, he says, nevertheless, the affection of the heart speaks after this manner. Luther is saying, our heart knows the language. And notice Paul's words carefully. It is by the Holy Spirit that we cry. The Greek word is kradzo. It sort of sounds like what it is. A cry. It's used dozens of times in the New Testament. And in almost every case, kradzo is used as a cry of either anguish or pain or as a plea for help. And I think why that's significant here is that Paul is helping us to understand the regularity with which the people of God find themselves calling out for help or calling out in pain, or calling out in distress. And he's saying this is what is distinctive about the Christian. In those times, what falls from their lips is the cry, Father, Father. What do you cry when calamity comes? Unbelievers are quite capable of using God's name in vain when bad times come. Just go to any professional sporting event. And like us at times, unbelievers 
when calamity comes, will say, God, why are you doing this to me, God? Or God, I don't understand this. The unbeliever will demand answers from God. The unbeliever will put God in the witness stand and put him on trial and demand that God give him an answer. But who but a child cries out in the moment of calamity, Oh, Father! And in this way, the Holy Spirit is working to bear witness within our spirits that we are children of God. If out of the depths of your soul the cry, Oh, Father, comes to you, that is part of the Spirit's inner witness. And that brings us to the fifth point, that because of adoption we are assured by God's Spirit. We have assurance. Assurance is perhaps the key theme of Romans chapter 8. And here we see it. Verse 16 speaks the language of assurance. Do you see it? The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now here we have the use of the word spirit twice. One is in reference to the Holy Spirit, and then the other is in reference to our inner being. So the Holy Spirit is not only the agent of our adoption, He also works to make us fully aware, deep within, that we are indeed children of God. And He does this in part by pressing upon our consciences, the the inner conviction that we belong to the Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. Now it's important to know that this is not a reference to some mystical experience that is added on sometime after you're saved. I think it's more akin to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he says that you can't say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, someone who doesn't know Christ can form the words Jesus is Lord. But what Paul is saying there is that only a child of God says Jesus is Lord with conviction, with faith, with trust, with hope, with full belief. And I think that there's a similar thing happening here that when we cry out, Oh, Father, in our calamity and in our pain, and when we cry it out because we know that He is our only hope, and when we cry it out because we are dismayed, because we know He is our Father, and we know that He loves us, and we know that He has chosen us and saved us, and yet our circumstances are so painful that we are left in dismay, and that in that moment all we know to do is to cry out as a child, Oh, Father! That's what the Christian does. And that comes out of the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. You know, there are some communities within the broader Christian world that hold that we cannot ever be truly assured of salvation. And I think that that is very near blasphemy. You dads, which one of you dads would ever want your children to not know that they belong to you. To not know that they are loved by you. And if we who are sinners can manage that, 
Imagine how much more is the delight of our Father to assure us that we are His children. Again from Martin Luther, quote, Although I be oppressed with anguish and terror on every side, and seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away from Thy presence, yet I am Thy child, and Thou art my Father for Christ's sake. I am beloved because of the Beloved. It's good, isn't it? We are assured because of the grace of adoption. Six, because of the grace of adoption, we are heirs of an eternal inheritance. We are heirs of an eternal inheritance. Now, we come to a transition point in chapter 8 here where Paul reflects back and simultaneously looks forward to the next section in chapter 8 where he's going to deal specifically with temporary suffering in light of eternal glory. So again, verse 16 and then verse 17. Do you see it? The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now stop there. Heirs. Inheritors. But of what? We are fellow heirs with Christ. We are heirs of God. What does that mean? Well, here we have to look at the broad sweep of biblical history, of redemptive history. As Paul writes in the book of Galatians, Jesus Christ is, quote, the seed of Abraham, and therefore the heir of all of God's gracious promises to Abraham. You can see that in Galatians chapter 3. And fundamentally, this is what God had promised to Abraham by way of covenant. He'd promised him people, place, peace, and prosperity. People, place, peace, and prosperity. He promised him a people. God's going to make a great nation made up of people from all the nations of the world. That was his promise to Abraham. A people. And he would give them a place which would be characterized by his peace and by abundant prosperity. And those things were temporarily granted, imperfectly, only provisionally, as the people were given possession of the land. But that ultimate inheritance, people, place, peace, and prosperity were never intended to be fully possessed in this sinful fallen world. We don't get heaven here, right? That's why we're told that Abraham and his sons, even after they entered the land, continued to live in tents. And why? Because the writer of Hebrews tells us. Because he was looking for the city with foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Even as he inherited the land of promise, Abraham knew that this ultimately was not it. That the inheritance that God had promised him would be fully realized in another age. And the same is true for us. We look forward to that age to come, for that will be the experience of the full inheritance that is ours in God because of Christ. And so... If we are children of God, and we are, then we are heirs. Heirs with Christ. And that is such a gracious way to put it, because what Paul is saying there is remarkable. He's saying, what is Christ's is yours. 
what the Father gives to Christ in terms of this eternal inheritance, you share in because now you are united to Christ. And we will one day have all that God has promised. A fully redeemed people in that place of perfect peace and prosperity in the blessed presence of God. That's why every single person in every single culture throughout every generation has longed for what we don't get here for some reason. That's because God has written it on their hearts that they were not made for this world. And then Paul makes this statement. Do you see it, that last clause in verse 17? If indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Oh, Paul, you were doing so good. It's so like Paul to bring up suffering, isn't it? But listen, Paul is not making suffering a condition upon which we inherit the eternal blessings of the Lord. Rather, since this inheritance is shared with Christ, as we are united to Christ by faith, then we are united to Christ also in his sufferings in this world. Paul is referring to the sufferings that are common to all people in the fallen world, but even more specifically, on that brand of sufferings that tend to be connected to identifying so closely with Jesus in a world that hates Jesus. In Luke chapter 22, we're told that Jesus was, quote, counted among the transgressors. What do you think will happen to you if you are united to Christ? The glory of the kingdom is inherited by those who are united to Christ by faith. And that means that we will share in His sufferings. Imagine the comfort this is to brothers and sisters in places like Nigeria, where they're being slaughtered by Muslims. Imagine what this means to Christians who are in North Korea, who have been disappeared and locked away in dungeons where they will never be seen again. Theologian David Wells writes this, quote, God's people have no assurances that the dark experiences of life will be held at bay. Quite the contrary. The church is warned repeatedly that despite God's providence, suffering and evil will befall all of those who follow Jesus. Well, being an heir of God is a source of tremendous comfort and assurance, but at the same time, as an heir, we are by definition waiting, aren't we? While being adopted by God places us within the realm of eternal life, it also places us squarely in the already not yet of this present evil age. And so from the very beginning, Christians have often found themselves living in societies that marginalize them and misunderstand them, mistreat them, persecute them, and even at times kill them. And this is why Paul's words to the Roman church continue to comfort every generation of Christians. As Paul indicates here, in this world you will suffer for the name of Christ. But not even the world's cruelest mistreatment can undo the glory of our adoption in the Spirit of God. Isn't it good to know God as Father? To know that He chose you? 
that He placed His name upon you? To know that He will never leave you? That it is an utter, cosmic, metaphysical impossibility for Him to cancel the certificate of adoption? To know that when you are hurting or afraid, anxious, in pain, suffering, that the God of the universe has made you His own, that He has adopted you and has caused you to cry out from the very deepest part of your inner being, Father, would you be a child of God today? Then cry out to Him. Abandon your sin and flee to Christ. Stop playing games. Stop acting like you have all the time in the world and flee to Jesus. Pray from your heart. God, make me your child. I believe in you. I trust Jesus as my Lord. I know that I am a sinner, but I also believe that Jesus is even a greater Savior. Save me and make me yours. And walk out of this place today a child of God. And you, Christian child of God, walk out of here today secure in the knowledge that you belong to Him, that He chose you, that He'll never leave you, and that whatever dismay or calamity you are in the present time trying to sort through, know this, that your heavenly Father is eternally good, perfectly wise, and in control. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Now, our Father and our God, we ask you to help us remember your word. Let it not leak out of our hearts today, but cause it to take root. Father, for the one who is on the precipice of faith but has never really followed you, would you grant them the faith to trust in you today? For the one who is struggling with sin, they belong to you, but they've been playing on the margins of the wicked world, would you bring them back to yourself? For the one whose conscience has been seared and whose heart is broken, Lord, grant them the deep, peaceful, restful knowledge that they bear your name, that they bear your love, that you are their Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.